Well, hello, and welcome to Spheres of Influence, the podcast that deals with the important spheres in our life, religion, politics, and culture. Hello, I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Please, um, if you are listening to this podcast, uh, consider leaving a review of this podcast. Um, I'd love it if it were four or five stars, but it would just be important if you leave a review and, and remember to share this with friends. I really hope that people enjoyed the last episode. It was episode 15, and we talked about the interstate highway system. This has long been one of my passions, and it was nice to find someone else that was as passionate as I was um, and as knowledgeable um, about this as Rob Sanders. Um, I do hope we can have him back again, maybe to talk about some other transportation issues. Um, I am working on trying to set up a few more episodes with interviews. Um, the, uh, there should be an upcoming one on, uh, Afghanistan and the upcoming troop pullout of uh, us troop pullout. And then, um, I am working on doing one, probably this is going to be one of a series on the future of, of the GOP and the wider center right movement in the United States. So, um, sit tight. We are going to be having some more interviews coming up in the near future. Um, also, just to let you know, I will be putting some episodes. Sometimes it will be this, just a voice, but sometimes they will actually be uh, me on video. Um, and that will be um, on my YouTube channel. And there will be a link in the show notes about um, how you can get onto the YouTube channel um, to, to uh, subscribe. And hopefully I will start putting more episodes there, especially video um, I do have a video of episode 15 that was, um, that I did. And, um, so that should be going up soon and I may be doing some voice, uh, just voice only ones that will come up, um, as well. So, um, one of the things you have to kind of know about me is I am, have both, I think ADHD, well, I know I am diagnosed with both ADHD and, um, Asperger's, which is on the autism spectrum. So sometimes the way that I think um, is not necessarily linear. Um, things can come really at a frenetic pace and come from different directions. And um, people who know me always see uh, that I don't necessarily always think things. I kind of just do them. So sometimes it, there will be episodes like this one that will kind of be bouncing around. So just to understand that um, and just hope you enjoy the ride. Um, so I wanted to talk about a few things and we will talk about some of the um, issues that took place this past week. And then also I wanted to talk about um, religion, some things that are happening within religion. And then finally end up with a tribute um to the astronaut Michael Collins, who uh, passed away uh, this past week at the age of 90. So let's start with uh, President Biden's speech. You know, the only way that I can say is that, well, big government is back. Um, you know, we have kind of come into this, you know, I think it's too early to say right now 
that the Reagan consensus, the, the governing consensus that we have had for the last 40 years is over. I don't think we will know that until a few years down the road. However, 40 years is a long time. Uh, the consensus before this was the New Deal consensus, and that was probably from 1933 and probably went until, um, some would say, the mid-70s. So it is about time that one consensus ends, a new consensus starts. So Biden was, President Biden was elected, most people thought he was going to be somewhat more moderate. And he has actually gone big. Um, we have seen him announce lots of, of programs. He has talked about um, his American Family Plan, which um, has paid leave, um, universal daycare, a lot of things that are coming down the pike, uh, two years of free of community college. All this is coming down the pike. And, um, you know, of course, the problem right now is that how are we going to pay for all this? And I am one that likes to would want to say that simply raising taxes on the upper income alone isn't going to cut it. Um, it's I'm not opposed to raising taxes on upper income folk. And, you know, we're not talking about raising it to 70 or 90 percent um, as it used to be, but to maybe 40 percent. But that alone isn't going to cut it. Most other if we if the goal is to really expand our welfare to our welfare state, um, you have to realize that in other parts of the world, people in other parts of the um, other income brackets are paying a lot more in taxes to pay for all of this. Um, so I don't think I'm, I'm not really certain you can can just pull this off with such a tiny group within society paying for it. I think there it's been fascinating looking at um, Twitter. And some of the people that I have followed, which are tend to be on the center right, are not happy. Um, they haven't been happy since we've heard some of these programs. Um, you know, some on the more kind of, I would say, uh, in, a, in a more vulgar way, would say that, you know, most people like this and there is a lot of support for these programs because they want to get stuff. I don't think that's the case. I don't think people just want more stuff. Any more than I think that 40 years ago, we wanted less stuff. But I think the times have changed. And times have changed in a way that has favored, um, I don't know if I want to say big government, but at least a government that is more responsive um, to issues. Um, and I think that there are a few things here to point out. Conservatives have, in many ways, allowed their policy agenda to atrophy. And that has happened long before Trump came on the scene. Um, some conservatives really have come to understand um, 
government to basically be opposed to liberty and that basically it should not be very involved. And if you were to go into some of the more libertarian um, sectors of the American right, there is almost a sense that if government isn't working, um, that's a good thing. And the problem with that type of, a, of government is that it doesn't really respond to people and respond to people's needs and hurts. Um, it's not simply that they want things for free. It is that they want to have freedom, the freedom to do things, and that sometimes how life is, that freedom is denied. But conservatives haven't, we have such a, people on the center right have such a kind of a negative concept of liberty, which in many ways makes sense, that it then blinds us to where people need help. Um, conservatives, as I said, have really, because now they there has been this sense that it is government versus everyone else, there's almost been a, a less of a desire to actually be engaged in government. And we shouldn't be surprised that the result are people like Matt Gates or Marjorie Taylor Greene that are more interested in um, generating memes on Twitter than they are in actually making policy. There are ways that you can support or have some belief in a government that is active, that is strong, and yet not support big government. And I think that that's the difference. I think some of what Biden is proposing, I think there are some good ideas there. My concern with with him and with a lot of people on the center left is that the government that they propose sometimes is too intrusive. It's too it's burdened by the regulatory state that doesn't allow for a lot of freedom. Um, it, in some ways, uses a governmental system that is not as modern as it should be. And so what you need in response is not no government, but a government that is much more responsive, much more strong, but far less intrusive. And I have come to see that there are ways that we can do this. And, the, and it's funny because some of the things that have happened in the last few months have really made me favor a more active and stronger government than, we, than it used to be. And I think that that's what's changed a lot of people you know, in the consensus. Um, the COVID-19 pandemic has really, I think, changed people in many ways or be at least more favorable to um, at least a more active government than in the past. Because, of course, when you have a virus that is sweeping through the population, you can't really always just say, let the private sector handle it. You have to have someone there that can coordinate, um, maybe sometimes even cajole um, sectors of society to do things. 
there are two things personally in my own life that have really, as I said earlier, changed uh, or at least made me more favorable towards stronger government. Uh, the first is that um, I was let go from a job in June of last year, and then that left me without insurance. Uh, the alternative would be I could go on my husband's plan, but it would have been incredibly, incredibly expensive. So he suggested that I look at Minsure, and Minsure here in Minnesota is basically the online marketplace that was made available through the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. And so what you do there is that I went and um, it is a marketplace. You try to find a plan that fits what you're looking for and sign up and then you have health care. And that has been helpful because I, I now have health care. Um, I, I got a new job that did not offer benefits, but that was okay because... I have health care. I can afford a plan, and it's a good plan. And um, it also has a, an option that I can um, add a, uh, a health care savings account, which is great. And so that is a way that it's not necessarily, and I think those of us on the center-right have always kind of looked at um, the Affordable Care Act as if it was some type of intrusive big government scheme a la the, the National Health Service in the UK or um, single payer in Canada. And just to let you know, I am not necessarily putting down those systems. They're not my type of systems, but for those of you who are, might be listening in the UK or Canada, just don't come at, after me. But personally, I think that we have to have some sort of a national health care scheme. But it doesn't have to be in the way that some other countries do it. We can use the market, but we can't just expect that the market's going to do it on its own. Um, for a long time, most healthcare companies didn't have individual plans, or if they did, they were quite expensive. Um, but I think through the Affordable Care Act, they've we've been able to kind of pull people together. That's been able to make it more affordable um, for people, and I think more cost-effective for insurance companies. And I think that it has led less people to be, have, um, to be uninsured. And we have to remember that it is ironic that those on the center-right, both libertarians and conservatives, have been so against Obamacare because it was a plan that came from the center-right. Obamacare, or the Affordable Care Act, was based on a plan developed by Mitt Romney, a Republican, in Massachusetts, which was based on a plan from the Heritage Foundation, which is hardly a bunch of radical leftists. That is a type of kind of strong government, or as I think Tyler Cowen has said, state capacity that you can have. And I think you know, he has um, started to champion this belief in state capacity libertarianism. Um, that is a, a kind of a libertarianism that still believes in, in liberty and freedom, but also believes that for the, that to happen, you have to have a strong state, not a big state, but a strong one. 
And that's, I think, one way that we can do that is through our the healthcare. Um, another thing that was important was, of course, I had to go on um, unemployment. So I went um, to get unemployment. And around that same time, that was when the of all of the different stimulus pack, COVID stimulus packages that were passed under both President Trump and Biden had some extra money put in in unemployment. So that raised the amount of um, money that was going in. And I think that that was great because what it meant was I had enough money that I could help pay bills, that I could live off of. You know, if I didn't have that, the the amount that I was going to be paid was was basically not enough to do much of anything. And I know and understand there is a concern that if we make unemployment so attractive, people will want to stay on unemployment. But I can tell you from at least from my own background, I wanted a job. I wanted to be able to work. I wanted to be able to do things. So I didn't want to be on this forever. But in the time period that I was there, I was glad that it was there and that I could have enough money to be able to do what I needed to do, to have the time to look for a job and to not be so stressed that, you know, figuring out how I was going to pay bills and everything. Conservatives, and I think people on the center-right, used to have these skills in governing. but And they also really, truly believed that there were other parts of society, civil society, that would could do some of the functions uh, that a state could do. And I think that, that there is some truth in that. But I think that they haven't paid as much attention to the fact that um, civil society over the last... 30 to 40 years has really atrophied. A lot of the organizations and institutions that people once put trust in, like the family or churches um, or um, civic organizations like the Masons or uh, those things have really lost ground. They're not as strong as they once were. And so basically, if you don't have a strong government, if you don't have a strong civil society, then people are left on their own. They have to kind of face the world alone. And so we shouldn't be so surprised that all of these changes, that's why I think in 2016, Donald Trump was able to do so well, because he was calling out that the system, the consensus that we had worked on for the last 40 years was no longer working and it was leaving people unhappy. And while he did not do anything to alleviate that, frankly, because he didn't care, doesn't mean that his, his um, point, point wasn't wrong. He had, he, it made some sense that I think the center-right wasn't paying attention to what was going on in the wider culture. And I think there are some that that are picking that up. But there still needs to be more, and there still needs to be more people who are willing to pay attention to what's going on in the wider culture. 
I think we're so afraid of a big government and what that will do and what that will change our society that we've just on the center right stopped looking to government to be a partner of any type. Government isn't, government isn't an enemy. It is a tool. It's a tool that can help people. If you use the tool too much, as I think some of our friends on the left do, I think it can do a lot of damage. But I think that we can also use that as a tool that can really improve people's lives. And I think that we have to do that because there are a lot of things in culture in our time that have changed. And if we don't provide an answer, one, it's going to just leave people looking for other answers, um, like, you know, blaming people who aren't white, or it's going to lead to, I think, what I think sometimes is, is going to be big government, but that is somewhat kind of dumb government. So I think that we need to realize that right now, the belief in a um, small government is irrelevant right now. But that doesn't mean that we have to give way to a all-encompassing state but it does mean that we have to have a state that has some um, strong capacity to help people um, in their lives. So let's move on to the second topic I wanted to talk about here, and that is um, the speech after the speech. So, of course, uh, President Biden um, spoke, and this wasn't, of course, the... Uh, State of the Union, but it's in, in the president's first year, it's always called the Address to Congress. Um, and just as a quick aside, I, I do say, and even though I don't always, I don't agree with them, there was something wonderful in seeing um, behind President Biden two women, um, Vice President uh, Harris and Speaker Pelosi. I think that's important that um, the second and third um, most powerful people in the United States are women. There's a lot of work that's still to be done to, um, I think, bring about true gender equality. But I can say I think we've come a long way, and I am very proud as an American to see that. So, but I wanted to um, move to talking about the Republican response. And the Republican response was um, by Tim Scott, who is the uh, a senator from South Carolina. He is African-American and a Republican. Um, there are some things about, I've been let down about him um, in, in that he hasn't really always stood up to uh, President Trump. But I also still think that he has some good. He um, I think he is one of the few, or at least can be helpful to um, the GOP in, in showing where there are still problems for African-Americans. Um, I think the thing that I've been most, I, I remember the most uh, back in uh, 2016, after a spate of, of um, police killings of African-Americans, 
Uh, and I can't remember if this was before or after Philando Castile here in Minnesota. Um, but he spoke in on the chamber on the Senate floor about the time that he had been stopped by Capitol Police. Now, think about this. This is a guy, he is a senator. People see, should see him on television. He probably had should would have his pen that said he was a senator. And yet, he was pulled over more than once. So he, under, he understands the whole thing about being, um, about African-Americans and, and, and dealing with cops. And I think he was trying very hard after the uh, death of George Floyd last year to put together some type of um, bill on police reform. I don't think it was a perfect one, but I think it was something that at least could have been a starting point. I think it was foolish for the Democrats to not um, at least look at it and to try to come up with something. Um, but there it is. The, he is starting again. I, I know that he is in talks with um, Cory Booker, uh, the Democratic senator from New Jersey, and Karen Bass, who is, a, I believe, a, a, it's a Democratic representative, African-American, from California. And so they are in talks about maybe coming up together with some type of a compromise bill on uh, police reform. And I, I do hope it passes or at least it, it, it goes somewhere because I think that we need to address this issue. Um, so the his speech, I think, was kind of boilerplate. It wasn't a terrible speech. I think that he is a good orator. It just wasn't very inspiring. Um, but he said something that obviously caused a, a stir. And he said that America is not a racist nation. And there were people that, that it drew cackles. Um, lots of people were, some people talked about the fact, well, you know, that he had been stopped by police. And others were talking, you know, showed pictures of slaves and um, probably, I think, the people under Jim Crow and all of this to show that, yeah, we are a racist nation. And it's hard for me to really say that we are or are not a racist nation. I don't think that we are. Let me just put it that way. Because I think to say that we're a racist nation is to say that we still have all of these you know, laws that would say that uh, black people can't do a lot of things. And um, you know, we don't have some of the things that, that my dad had when he grew up in uh, Louisiana under Jim Crow, um, where you had to uh, go into separate uh, places to do things like use the bathroom. You know, dad could not back, and I probably will, this will be as an episode at some point. Whenever he, he moved to Michigan, probably in his mm, mid-20s, and um, so when he would go back to Louisiana to visit relatives, um, he would get some chicken from his sister who had moved up here earlier 
and then he would drive. And the reason he got chicken from his sister was because there was, he couldn't stop at a, a restaurant along the way. Um, and he also could not stop at a hotel. So he just basically pulled off on the side of the road um, and got some sleep. That's the America that he grew up in. And, um, you know, that was also, I should, should stress, not just a Southern thing. Um, that happened, you know, he has told, he told me stories about not getting, of looking for work in Peoria, working for Caterpillar, and being told that there were no jobs for him. But of course, these white people were getting jobs. And when he did finally get a job working at Buick um, in Michigan, um, he was working in probably one of the more dangerous places because that's usually where all the African-Americans started. So looking at that America of 50, 60, 70 years ago, I don't think that we are a racist nation. It's hard for me to say that we are a racist nation when we elected an African-American man to the presidency, not once, but twice, by very substantial margins. And now we have an African-American, Asian-American woman as vice president. So, but to say that we're not a racist nation does not mean that there are no problems. And I think that that's where the hesitancy sometimes comes in. Because I think sometimes on the center-right, we want to say that we aren't a racist nation and then ignore all the problems that are, that are still happening, such as um, encounters, African-American encounters with police. Back in um, January, after the whole um, insurrection at the Capitol, I wrote something... Um, about the fact that um, people were saying, um, and especially at that point, President-elect Biden was saying, this is not who we are as Americans. And I had to question that because looking at our history, it is, it's not exactly who we are. It's not all of who we are, but it is a part of who we are. And we have to be honest about that past. But we aren't just defined by our past or our present. Saying that we're a racist nation in some ways, for me at least, brings up images from South Africa, you know, in the 70s and 80s especially, um, where African Americans could not vote. I mean, not African Americans, but black South Africans could not vote. Um, where they had pass laws, where, you know, they had to have literally have basically a passport that allowed them to travel within their own country. That's where I think that that's what we're not, but we still have issues. And I think I, I sometimes get frustrated when people say that we don't have those issues. So such as police issues with the police, um, people will usually bring up with the fact that, well, of course, um, you know, more white people actually are getting killed by the police than black people. That's true. Of course, it's important to remember that there are more black, more white people than there are black people. 
So that's something to take into account. Second, in hearing the stories of people who have been stopped by police or have been um, beaten or even killed, there is a, a sense that this would, how it happens, would not happen for a white person. Now, that's not to say that white people don't have a problem. And I think that the problem um, with the police is a larger problem. It's not just race. It's how we train police. We compare it to other countries. We do not train our police long enough um, to be out there um, patrolling, especially with a gun. So we need to do something about that. But that is still an issue. It, it is also still an issue of race. And I think that's what I'm trying to get at, that it's the, the whole thing about America as a racist nation is that we are not. I think that we are a nation that has tried as is closer to living out um, what is in the Declaration of Independence about equality than we have ever before. But we do have issues regarding racism. Those two things can be true. Um, they do not cancel each other out. And I think that we have to be willing to say we are not as bad as we can be. We are not without hope. But we also have these issues that we need to work on. So now I want to kind of move over into religion. And um, this is kind of a two-parter here because it's, I was fascinated a few weeks ago, uh, Shadi Hamid, who is a fellow at the Brookings Institution, uh, came out, wrote an article um, on the concept of how we're losing. Um, there are less people interested in church these days. He, he wrote something called America Without God. I think he's been very fascinated by this as a, a devout Muslim and noticing how we are um, in some ways losing our faith. Um, he notes that, you know, from the mid-30s to the late 90s, church membership was almost constant. It was around 70%. After 2000, it dropped. Now it's less than 50%. And if you looked at different generations, um, the millennial generation is probably the first in a long time that has a majority of people who don't go to church. Um, so, you know, that's a worrisome thing of people not going to church. And you might think, well, so what? You know, people aren't going to church. But it has implications because what's happening is that people aren't just giving up religion. They're putting that passion, that energy into something. And what they're doing is putting it into politics. Um, and that's what um, Shadi Hamid is talking about here. And if you notice, if you think about it, religion has become, I mean, politics has become almost like religion. It, there is a fervor that I have not seen before. You know, in the past, when we would talk about um, politics, you know, we all had deeply held opinions, but they weren't held in a way that was almost religious. Um, 
And, you know, when it, we start to look at politics in that way, it makes politics, society almost in some ways ungovernable because you can't compromise. You can't really talk to people with differing views, um, which is, I know this makes it sound like I'm having a really bad um, spotlight on religion, but, you know, within religion, there are things, you know, we, I, we believe certain things, certain things that we think are outside of the realm of religion, we consider heretical. And that makes sense within religion. It does not make sense in politics, but we have poured that religion into politics. And that has in some ways made our politics um, more toxic and making it more ungovernable. And I think that that's dangerous. And I think that what we are finding out also is that we are becoming less and less religious and that some people used to think that if we were less religious, we were going to be a nicer nation. What we have found out is that that's not true. Um, there has been a lot of talk about the fact that um, Democrats have become less of a church-going party. What there hasn't been as a lot of talk about is the fact that there has been really a move within on the right where that has become more secular. And I think to I think to paraphrase something that Ross Dalfoot has once said is that if you don't like the religious right, you will hate the post-religious right because religion in some ways was a, a something that held people back. But what you're finding out, especially among the right, the right has become more secular. It has, you know, you have a lot of people who may say and talk about God, but a lot of people who are Trump supporters, especially, and at least they found this out in 2016, didn't go to church. So they were at least nominally Christian, but they they didn't have, go to church at all. So they that wasn't an impact on their life. So it was... Um, it, it basically, in some ways, created these people who are less than, um, well, they're they're not charitable. You know, if you are someone in in uh, that has a faith, you're going to have be someone that is caring about others. Um, you, if 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 it works right, you're going to be someone that knows what is right and what is wrong and what you should say, what you shouldn't say. And when you don't have that, you end up with people who are pretty nasty. I think a lot of the reason that we see such, um, well, nastiness, especially when it comes to uh, immigration on the right, is because I think a lot of the people that are um, pushing for basically no immigration are people who don't go to church, people who don't see uh, the other person, um, the refugee or the immigrant, as a fellow person of God or someone made in the image of God. 
And when you don't see that, then they become not just something of, to be afraid of, but something to be hated. And so I think what's happening is that you have people who religion is not important on either the right or the left. And I think that that's going to make for some really volatile politics in the next 10, 15, 20 years that I think we're not, I don't think we're ready to see that happen, but I think it's going to happen. And the thing that is also fascinating is um, somewhere in this, maybe I don't know if it was in this survey or, or not, but it talked about the mainline churches. Um, I mean, that is the church tradition that I am a part of. Um, and especially the what are, are called the seven sisters of um, American Protestantism. I'm part of one of those um, seven sisters. It is the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. The others um, that I thought you should know are the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Episcopal Church, the Presbyterian Church USA, American Baptist Churches USA, and the United Church of Christ. Um, there are some others that you may want to consider are part of um, the uh, mainline group, but these are the ones that are... Um, most well-known. And it has, it's not a secret that, that those um, groups have declined in the last 20 to 30, well, actually, I would say about 40 years. And that has caused a lot of concern. Um, two years ago, well, yeah, two years ago, a professor at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, uh, Dwight Zeschel, who is a um, ELCA um, or Evangelical Lutheran Church in America a minister, wrote an article that has was causing a lot of buzz that was called, Will the ELCA Be Gone in 30 Years? And there are projections that if you looked forward to 20 years from now, 2041, that the average of people would be in worship on a Sunday would be 16,000. And the number of, of total people in the, in the denomination would be 67,000. <clears> now, mind you, it's important to know the ELCA was created, it was by a merger back in 1988. And when that happened, there were 5 million people. I think right now they hover around 3 million. Yeah, I see here... Uh, 3.3 million as of 2019. And um, so they are losing people. And the um, Mr. Z uh, Reverend Zeichel was kind of curious about what's going on, what's causing people to not go to church anymore. And I think he found a few things. Um, he talks about culture and how our culture makes it hard for people to imagine and to be led by God. That's kind of a problem in our in the West. Um, we aren't really very clear about what is it to be distinctive about being Christian. And our churches aren't really good at helping people make meaning of their lives. And so, you know, his thing is that Christians need to rediscover some of the, the simple things that they've always done, that prayer, the scripture, service, hospitality, the things that are important to congregational life. 
um, that can help people kind of see God in action and to really make spiritual habits more accessible and listening to people in your community and outside and then learning how to translate um, the language of church into the wider culture. Um, and there are some others here, um, experimenting with different things and sharing um, the journey, sharing who you, um, sharing with each other, both in the church and I think outside of the church. And I think that those are all good ideas. Um, my concern sometimes when I, I notice being in the mainline church, and I've been part of it now for about 30 years, is sometimes within the church, how people don't see its necessity. Um, sometimes I what I will hear sometimes is that, you know, the church closing is, it's sad, but, you know, it's not a, not a really big deal that happens. Everything dies. So we have this kind of view that we don't seem to place a huge amount of emphasis on the local church. We're not planting new churches. You know, we're involved, I think, socially. And I think that that's always been a strength in the mainline churches. But I worry that it's becoming that we're doing social justice and social witness, but without the local church. And I think that that's kind of makes up a very weak spirituality. And I think, you know, the other, th I tend to be very wanting to get people interested about this and to care is um, because I think for me, it's a personal issue. Um, being someone that's openly gay, this has been um, mainline Protestantism is the only place that would welcome me. I have a lot of respect for other traditions, for Catholicism, for evangelicalism. There are people within those traditions that I respect, but I could never, in some cases, I wouldn't be able to be a part of their fellowship. And I definitely would not be able to be ordained. And I worry that we have this tradition, this great tradition of mainline Protestantism that I think people within it are letting to slip away, that we take it for granted. And I wish that there would be more seriousness um, because it's a special part of American religion. But we have to be serious about it and we have to see its impact and importance in the lives of, of, of people. And I hope in coming years, people will take it more seriously and that there will be leaders that will take it seriously that are not just strong on social issues because that's important, but also knowing and understanding the spiritual issue as well. Uh, the final thing that I wanted to close in on is a tribute or at least a remembrance. Uh, Michael Collins um, died on Wednesday at the age of 90. Now, some of you probably are already going, going to ask me, who is Michael Collins? Some of you also might think I'm talking about the 
leader of the Irish Revolution a century ago. So it's not that Michael Collins. Michael Collins was the third astronaut on Apollo 11. But a lot of people don't know who he is. The reason that they don't know is because the other two people on the trip with him were able to get beyond the surface of the moon in 1969, and Collins didn't. Um, his compatriots, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, both were, they were in the lunar module. They came down to the surface of the moon, and they were uh, the first two people to be on the lunar surface. Michael Collins was a pilot, so he had to remain in the uh, command module, uh, some 60 miles above the moon. And so he always kind of didn't always get a lot of attention because he wasn't the one that was on the moon. The interesting thing about Collins was that there seemed to be, from what I've read, a joy about him. He was, he was just happy to have been able to have this opportunity to go into space uh, to be able to see a picture of the moon and to be able to see the earth um, from afar. And he said something that was fascinating that, and this was happened decades later, he could still look up at the moon and say, I was there. And technically you could say he wasn't, I mean, he wasn't on the actual moon, but in reality, he was there. He was the pilot. He was up above circling the moon. He saw the moon from a vantage point that very few other humans could. And so he could, he still could look at the moon with wonder. And just, I think he is an example in some ways of humility and of gratitude. And I actually, on Wednesday, I, I try to do a, a pastoral column for my congregation. And so I, um, wrote about him. And I think that he was an example of this sense of, of gratitude for being able to have this opportunity and for humility that he never kind of, it wasn't about him. He was, he was the team player um, to get people towards this goal. And I think people also forget his role. Of course, the reason he was in the command module is because he was the pilot. He was the guy that got them to the moon and, you know, he was also going to be the one that had to get um, Armstrong and Aldrin back to Earth. So it was without him, people weren't going to get very far. So I kind of like and, and was um, thankful for his example of what it meant and how to live. And it was fascinating um, I wanted to contrast that because I have started to watch um, a new, uh, well, it's not a new now, but a TV series um, for all mankind, um, which is on Apple Plus. And for those who are not aware, it is um, kind of an alternate history show. Um, they posit that, you know, instead of the the Americans reaching 
the moon first and thereby winning and ending the space race, it was the Soviets that got first. So what would happen if, if the Soviets got there first? And so in this um, reality, the space race doesn't end. It continues. And so we get to see kind of the, the space race as it goes through in the 60s to 70s and 80s. And in the first episode, we deal with this fictional astronaut by the name of Ed Baldwin. And Baldwin was on Apollo 10. Now, Apollo 10 in both realities was a dress rehearsal. It was a, um, they got maybe within less than 10 miles of the surface of the moon and then went back up. It, this was kind of a way to show how things would work. Well, Baldwin was upset, and so were some of his fellow astronauts, that he didn't go farther, that he just maybe disobeyed what people said and continued to go down to the surface. And once he got to the surface, he would have been the first man on the moon. And America would have beaten Russia. And so he's kind of saying this to a reporter, which is probably not the smartest thing to do, that he could have done this, that he could have, and, and you see this image of him, whether he or not he was going to hit the abort button. Because if he hit the abort button, then that meant he would go back up from the, in the lunar module back up to the command module. And of course he does that, and he regrets it. And I can contrast that because I think he, in some ways, wasn't being a team player. You know, it was this sense of wanting the glory before being part of the team. And I think that's so different from Collins. Now, that he was willing, he wasn't interested in, in grabbing the spotlight. He was interested in <clears throat> having a part of, being a part of history, being a part of helping to meet a goal. And I, I just think that that's such a wonderful example. And I guess I want to say to thank Collins for being such an example that I think especially today we need to hear more. And, you know, as we are starting our new um, race towards the moon um, with the Artemis program, I hope it is something that, that other astronauts are, are listening to, that it is a good thing to be part of the team, um, that we get there together, not by stealing the glory, but by coming together and, and working for a common goal. Well, uh, that is my kind of odd um, journey, as I said, this is what you kind of get when you have someone that's kind of with ADHD and, and autism. It's kind of, you're going to be going everywhere. But I hope that you enjoyed it. I hope that this was an interesting discussion. There wasn't really any main theme today, but I wanted to talk about a few different things um, that I think are important. Uh, stay tuned because, as I said, we will be having um, some interviews that I think are going to be uh, fascinating. And also, if you have an idea for an interview, um, let me know. Uh, the email is going to be in the show notes. And um, just drop me a line and we can talk. And so um, 
thank you. I'm, I'm glad we had this time to chat and um, take care. Be uh, And I will see you next time. Godspeed. Thank you.